Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, and this is the second in our series, The Odd Couple of Basic Income here in Canada, Art Eagleton and Hugh Siegel. This episode with former Conservative Senator Hugh Siegel, and also recent author of Bootstraps Need Boots, One Tory's Lonely Fight to End Poverty in Canada. Hugh, thank you for taking the time and joining me. My pleasure. Why do you think everyone should receive a basic income if they're below a certain income level? Really for reasons of what I would call liquidity, efficiency, and productivity. The efficiency of our present income support system across the country is actually quite deplorable. The provincial plans are deeply bureaucratic, punitive in terms of formally discouraging work. The amount of welfare in most provinces is less than half the poverty line or the market basket test in each province in terms of the actual cost of living. And it is disconnected in, in a very real way from the various other programs which operate constructively at the federal level. Secondly, we still have uh, between three and four million Canadians who live beneath the poverty line. And while the percentage has gone down because of programs like the child benefit and other innovations for which uh, the present federal government deserves immense credit, the three or four million people are really living in pretty desperate circumstances. And the final reason, I guess, and this is the one that I think is perhaps most compelling from my perspective, the right to live at a reasonable level financially should be something which is part of the general Canadian way of life just as uh, universal health insurance is part of the Canadian way of life. And we know that poverty is one of the most accurate predictors of bad health outcomes, uh, bad education outcomes for the kids, bad interaction with substance abuse, and sometimes therefore with the law, all of which has huge costs for the rest of society, independent of the terrible lives that the people beneath the poverty line have to live. And so I've always thought we can do this more efficiently and more effectively with less stigma and in a way which actually increases increases one's connection to the workforce and one's prospects of improving one's economic circumstance. In a country as wealthy as Canada, it's clearly a choice that we make, whether we will ensure that we look after all Canadians or whether we continue with major gaps in our social safety net. Well, and what, what's really fascinating is that we, most of the welfare programs across the provinces and the many, 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 many hundreds of rules which define eligibility in each jurisdiction really go back to the poor laws of the 18th century. They really are implicit with a, a moral judgment on why someone is poor, as if that represents a moral failing. Where in fact, people, as we found out with the um, shutdown of non-essential businesses, people can end up income-free instantaneously through no fault of their own. Now that we have come to that conclusion, and 8 million Canadians are getting that support to the government's credit because of the CERB, I think we have a chance to make a substantial change which would be manageable, affordable, and would really improve the quality of life and the general sense of community and opportunity which we believe in in this country. You've been a longtime advocate of basic income. I read an article of yours that I found incredibly persuasive in the Literary Review many years ago. But you've not only been an advocate, you've also had hands-on experience in policymaking on this issue here in Ontario. So walk us through your involvement in the Basic Income Pilot Project and some of the details. The woman who did the anal analytical work on the first Basic Income Pilot in Canada is an academic at the University of Manitoba Health Science Centre by the name of Evelyn Forget. And she came as a visiting scholar at Massey College in 2016. And no sooner had she 
arrived, then the Premier of Ontario invited her and me to come for a cup of coffee and to discuss what we learned from Dauphin, what she learned from Dauphin, and how that might relate to the Ontario welfare system. We had a very fulsome discussion in office number two at Queen's Park. Then the Minister of Finance, in his subsequent budget in the, in the spring of 2016, announced that the province would be launching a pilot. And the goals of the pilot would be to test a basic income against the existing welfare system, particularly to see which does a better job in terms of connection to the workforce, in terms of health outcomes for recipients, and to determine what the actual cost would be in compared to the present system. And then I was asked by the Premier uh, if I would put together a plan, a draft plan for the government to consider as to how that pilot project might operate. I spent 12 weeks meeting with officials, meeting with people living in poverty, meeting with folks in the department in, in Ottawa and in uh, at Queen's Park, meeting with the various advocacy groups, meeting with academics. We had a large round table at the University of Toronto um, with all the various groups, healthcare, social policy, academics, both for and against the idea, by the way. It was an open-minded proposition. And then we, we shaped the actual proposal. The proposal basically said that at the present time, Ontarians on welfare were getting 45% of the poverty line. That's what the amount they received, about $670 a month for an individual recipient. But they were discouraged from working. So we proposed, and the government accepted the idea, that the amount of money people should get is $1,300 a month, which would take them, by the way, to 75% of the poverty line. So you're still not dealing with an amount that provides great comfort or or high quality of life, it's just the fundamental basics, very, very modest, and they would be encouraged to work. So unlike welfare, which says if you earn a couple of hundred bucks a month or more, it is clawed back dollar for dollar, which is a 100% rate of taxation on earned income, which is higher than Conrad Black would pay, for example, uh, this would be a plan where if you worked, you would pay 50% uh, on your income that you earned, get to keep the other 50%. And if you reach the point where you earned as much as the base grant of 1300, you would then be taxed at the same level as every other Canadian on their earned income, period, full stop. Much of the conversation around basic income looks to what it would cost us to implement a basic income. But we also know that there are serious costs to poverty and that there would be savings in implementing a basic income. Well, in fact, Don Drummond, in his days as a uh, former senior vice president economics of the TD Bank, Don was retained by the Food Banks Association of Ontario to do a study that answered your question precisely. What is the cost to the province, grosso modo, of poverty? So quite independent of the 9 to $11 billion which the taxpayers of Ontario spend on the Ontario Disability Support Program and on Ontario Works, which is the euphemistic term for, par for welfare, there was another $15 billion a year in, in other costs that were generated by poverty. And that, of course, when, when you hear people, some of my friends on the right say, we just can't afford it, they're never looking at both sides of the ledger. I have a constituent who, in the course of the last provincial election, who was able to ask now Premier Ford on more than one occasion whether the basic income pilot would be cancelled. And each time, the answer was no, we look forward to seeing the results of the study. Of course, immediately upon being elected, the rug was pulled out, the basic income pilot was cancelled. You spent a significant amount of time helping to get that pilot off the ground. What was your reaction to that decision? Well, first of all, I found out because a very 
a very able journalist from the Toronto Star was good enough to call me and ask for my reaction. I had no idea that the province had decided to do that, and there's no reason I should have had any prior notice, but that's how I found out. I've learned in politics uh, over many, many years never to question someone's motives. I can question someone's judgment, and I can question whether the decision was right or wrong, but I don't question their motives. My suspicion is that when the new government got elected, which was back then more a Ford Nation government than a progressive conservative government, in my view, they had, they had cut taxes, they had frozen hydro, they had cut gasoline taxes, they were doing buck of beer, they were doing a whole bunch of things which were going to have an impact on their revenue stream. And then they go through the kabuki play, which we all see when governments change, which is government gets in promising to make no cuts, gets elected, calls in outside auditors, usually friendly, to look at the inherited books. And then we get the, oh my God, the cupboard is bare, which is all part of the second act of the play. And then, of course, they have to bring in restraints to deal with the cash circumstance they had no idea existed before they got elected, they allege. And then everybody around the ministry table, and I've sat at tables like this in federal and provincial governments, I said, look, you're going to have to come up with some contribution from existing programs. And as the um, pilot was going to cost $150 million in total over three years, so $50 million a year, one year had already gone out, they were able to cut the next two years and throw in $100 million, which would have been helpful. And then they came up with arguments about, well, the best, you know, the best welfare program is a job and all of that right-wing stuff. I've been in politics not so very long, but promises that are broken like that with such an about face do damage to people's trust in the work that we do ultimately. It was a great privilege doing the thing that I did for 16 weeks and meeting with so many people and specifically spending time with uh, our fellow Ontarians who live in poverty and kind of getting their direct street advice about what it was like and, and how the money would be used if they knew they had a guarantee and how their life would change. But I thought about the 4,000 people who signed up in good faith. A lot of folks who live beneath the poverty line have lives that are so difficult, they're not big on trusting government or institutions. So they had to make a leap of faith to sign up for this. And during the first year, and we saw this in some work done by McMaster University's Department of Economics, studying what happened for some of the recipients in the Hamilton area, they were doing exactly with the money and with the promise of the money what they would have done if you and I were giving them advice on how to make the best choices. Some were moving to a slightly better apartment so they could have more space for them and their family. Some were getting more education so they could increase their job prospects going forward. I remember there was one woman in her late 40s who used the extra money to go out and for the first time in her life buy a new winter coat. And, an, and, and, an, and a person of more advanced age who used it to buy a more elaborate walker than the one she could afford. These are the sorts of things that I think most Ontarians would not want to deny their fellow Ontarians. You know, equality of opportunity, that's what the university financing has been about. That's what healthcare has been about primary and secondary education being free has been about, we really can't turn away from three to four million Canadians who do not have a shot at equality of opportunity, in my judgment. And with reference to your recent book, one can only pull oneself up by one's bootstraps if one has boots. 
It was an expression used by others, but the worst discrimination is the discrimination of low expectations. There's a whole group of good people with whom I disagree, but they're good people on the far right who say, you know, if you pay someone who's not working, why would they work? Or uh, what will they do with the money except spend it on cigarettes and gambling and all that? And I, I refer to that, that crowd as the coal in the bathtub crowd. And that comes from the early debates about designing a row housing in the northern mining towns in the United Kingdom at the turn of the century. And the debate was, would there be bathtubs in those homes? And the usual suspects on the far right said, well, you can't, you can't put bathtubs in those homes. They won't know what to do with them. They will just fill them with coal. Well, of course, that was wrong, just as segregation was wrong, just as denying universal suffrage to women was wrong, just as opposing immigration was wrong. We've learned that in our modern state, and I think it's time we apply some of those learnings to the way in which we deal with uh, low-income Canadians and try to afford them more opportunity. And while we lost the basic income pilot here in Ontario for short-term savings, potentially, we are now living through a different kind of experiment with COVID-19. And we have the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, which operates like a basic income of sorts, where it is $2,000 a month, and an individual can earn up to $1,000 and still receive that benefit. But it does create a bit of a wall, where if an individual earns $1,001, they lose their benefit entirely, which clearly creates a disincentive to work. I trust that we will now extend the CERB just as we've extended the wage subsidy, but the design clearly needs to be revisited. You and Art worked alongside over 50 senators to call for a crisis minimum income. With the next iteration of the CERB, should we proceed by way of a negative income tax? And is this an opportunity to explore this idea writ large across Canada in a more serious way? The answer to all those questions is yes. We have history here. This is not rocket science. In Ontario in the mid-70s, the Davis government, a minority government, with the help of the Liberals and the New Democrats, brought in something called the Guaranteed Annual Income Supplement, G-A-I-N-S, GAINS. And it was a way of reducing the level of poverty among seniors, 65 and older, from 35% to 5% in three years. That migrated to other provinces, and then the federal government created the Guaranteed Income Supplement, which is the national program, which says to every, anybody in this country over the age of 65, from whatever your sources may be, you will not have less than $1,200 a month on which to live. And the GIS tops up the gap between whatever their other sources may be and 1200 and the 1200 gets moved with inflation on a regular basis going forward. So we know how to do this. We do it now and we do it effectively. And the same is true for the child benefit, which to the credit of the government is helping lower income and lower middle income families with kids, up to $6,000 a kid per year, very helpful. The federal government has the option of simply saying this, the CERB is gonna to come to an end or phase out over the following period of time. We are then gonna bring in through CRA, which is how the CERB operated, a basic income guarantee for all Canadians if they're beneath the poverty line. And that basic income guarantee will, whatever the number is, you know, whether it's 1400 a month or 1500 a month or some, and it'll be activated through CRA when you file your taxes. And what we've now learned to the credit of the outstanding civil servants in CRA is that they have the ability online to adjust someone's income based on a filing 
which they can then address directly. I mean, you would have heard, I'm sure, from your own constituency, uh, whatever the problems may have been, and I certainly heard here in Kingston, that there are many people who went online on the Monday because their birthday was in the first part of the year and filed, and the money was deposited in their account by Wednesday. That is a level of agility that neither EI nor provincial welfare programs could possibly ever achieve because they are heavily rule-based and require judgments either by algorithm or by people as to eligibility. If the federal government announced that and phased it in, then as that money was being flowed out to recipients, people who are now on welfare would no longer be eligible for welfare because their income from other sources would be too high. And then in Ontario, that would only mean a savings of nothing serious, about $11 billion a year. And the cost of welfare province uh, federally, right across the country, for all the provinces rather, is about $20 billion. And that's without talking about the savings on the other side of the ledger. So it's not a hard thing to do. And there would be, I think, imagine, it would be, by the way, a wonderful, a wonderful legacy of all this COVID circumstance to say we have now stepped up and said no Canadian is going to live so far beneath the poverty line that they can't actually in any way make a living. You mentioned the GIS and the Canada Child Benefit and using the income tax system to deliver these benefits. But we are now in a situation where millions of Canadians are in need of a basic income, but last year's tax filings would show that they had an income and they've only recently lost their income. Given all of your work planning and with the basic income pilot in Ontario, do you think it's possible that we could have an attestation eligibility that would then be corrected by one's income tax filing down the road? My instinct would be that, you know, when, when Canadians file their tax form and they sign the bottom of the form, they're signing a statutory declaration. So that is a more serious declaration in terms of the uh, penalties for not telling the truth than might be the case of trying to fiddle with your welfare officer. So my view is we'd probably have to step up to a statutory declaration, but there's no reason it can't be done online, frankly. And therefore, there's no reason that the amount of money in the file would not be quite contemporaneous. The CRA rules now indicate that if I had a job and I was getting paid $60,000 a year, and then I got another job which paid $120,000 a year, somebody, either my employer or I, would have to inform CRA when that happens so they could begin to take more tax off my weekly paycheck. And it works the other way around. If I had a job that paid $60,000 a year, and I lost that job, and I was only earning $25,000 a year, then I'd be able to tell CRA that, and they would take less money off my paycheck. So that already exists in the system. And even with, with all the bureaucracy associated therewith, it's still better than EI, and it's still better than provincial welfare in terms of agility. And now that we know that CRA does have, to the credit of those outstanding public servants, the ability to deal with this on an uh, online basis, then we would have a capacity to make these changes so it is reflective of the income circumstance now. You know, as is the case with many seniors, there are folks who provide clinics to help seniors fill out their tax forms so they get the GIS. Um, and uh, we would make sure that the various organizations that operate in the community could make sure that everybody had an ability to file online so that they could get the support they needed on an efficient and effective basis. And look, 
for me, it's about liquidity. I, one of the great things, which I, when you get, uh, you're so busy in MP, but if you ever get a chance to read Ben Barnacki's PhD thesis, Ben Barnacki, who was the, uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve at the end of the uh, Bush II regime and the beginning of the Obama regime during the 0809 credit collapse. And his thesis was on what went wrong with the way in which Calvin Coolidge and the rest of the gang dealt with the depression in 29. And what went wrong was austerity. The decision to reduce liquidity in the marketplace um, so as to make sure the government had all the money it needed. In fact, we have learned that we have to provide liquidity for the banks and the governor of the Bank of Canada has done that to his credit. We provided greater leverage for greater leverage for the insurance companies so they can continue to make investments and loans as part of their investment portfolio into the community. Uh, we are doing uh, quantitative easing where the, where the governor of the bank is purchasing provincial bonds so the provinces have liquidity. So for society to address these kind of macro liquidity issues efficiently is to its credit. But to have no response for liquidity for low-income people who find themselves, or those seven, eight million Canadians. And by the way, the cost of moving from 2,000 a month for eight million Canadians to 13 or 1,400 a month for three to four million Canadians is actually a lot less. And, and as the government of the Bank of Canada said last week, a CERB-like income security program, this is precise words, would help fuel recovery. Every single person receiving those funds will be spending those dollars back into their local economy. Absolutely. They're not going to be opening up uh, tax accounts in the Caymans. They're going to be putting that money back in the economy. And that's exactly what we're going to need so that we do get a recovery earlier than some of the pessimists suggest and in a way that is robust enough so that most Canadians can manage. And we saw the same thing with the Canada Child Benefit, obviously lifting hundreds of thousands of kids and families out of poverty, but also providing a significant consumer stimulus into our economy. And I think the child benefit deserves credit uh, for the fact that the rate of poverty has come down. Uh, I was one of the commitments of, of your party uh, in several elections, and, and your party did have, as you know, policy resolutions at annual meetings that were passed across the country in favor of a basic income. This would be, I think, a historic legacy which would stand all those in Parliament who supported it very, very well. Now, you've been at this for quite some time, calling for a basic income, working across party lines towards a basic income. How did you come to the idea in the first place? There's no better way to develop a kind of um, macro sense of what poverty does to people than to grow up in a really poor family, <laughs> which, which I did. I had two wonderful, loving parents, but this was in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, there was no really meaningful unemployment insurance back then. There was not even universal health insurance. So the notion that uh, my dad, who was a cab driver after a long period of unemployment, and my mom, who had to go out and work as an um, all-night cashier at the medical arts pharmacy in downtown Montreal to put some food on the table, uh, that they could any one month pay for the rent, the heat, the pharmaceuticals, the medical bills, uh, the butcher. Uh, etc. not on. My dad would say, let's pick any two, because <laughs> that's what we can do this month. So I, I saw what poverty does uh, to people, to their lives. I went through it a bit myself, and we would have been amongst Canadian low-income working-class families uh, better off than many others uh, in Montreal. So 
that's where I developed this sense that there was a dis disconnect between so many things that we believed in and the way in which many people had to live their lives. And then, if you excuse the expression, a progressive conservative prime minister, Mr. Diefenbaker, came to my high school uh, when I was uh, 12 in the 1962 general election, presented a copy of the Canadian Bill of Rights to our principal, and then made a, by the way, the writing was Mount Royal, which is a rotten liberal borough. It's always going to be liberal in perpetuity, I'm afraid. Uh, Alan McNaughton, who was Speaker of the House of Commons, was the MP. Mr. Diefmaker made a speech about the Canadian family table and the need for us to reach out and make sure there's room added for everybody. Whether their name had 12 syllables or two, whether they were French, Canadian, or English, came one of those sorts of Diefenbaker speeches. And then he looked at this crowd of kids, most of whom were first or second generation immigrant, and said, to, and our parents had all come out, et cetera, for the prime minister. And he'd said, look, I need your help to build that country. I don't care who you vote for, he said, that's up to you, but I need your help to build that kind of country. So, you know, you're 12. And I remember walking home and thinking about the connection between a better life for more Canadians and what somebody in public life could do to help achieve that. And then I got home, of course, and my grandfather was um, a tailor and he worked in a plant in downtown Montreal, and he was a lo local organizer for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, so he was very CCF, NDP. My father, the cab driver, had been a um, regional campaign district manager for the Liberal MP in Montreal Cartier, a chap by the name of Milty Klein, nice fellow, good fellow. So when I announced I really liked what Mr. Diefenbaker said, and I thought I would support his local candidate, my father said over my dead body, well, you know, when, when, when you're 12 years old, uh, that's about as good as it gets. And my mother said, we're not going to have this debate at the Friday night table. Thank you very much. Huey, you, you'll write all the leaders of all the parties tomorrow morning and ask why you should join their party. And then you'll see what you get back and you'll decide. Of course, being, as my daughter would now say, a total nerd, that's what I did. And I wrote Mr. Diefenbaker and Mr. Pearson. And I wrote Tommy Douglas. And I wrote Robert Thompson, the head of the Social Credit Party. And I wrote Ray Al Coet, the head of the Creditists, and comprehend, yeah. And um, so I got, you know, basically pamphlets and what I would call a mimeographed letter. The only letter that was personal, in the sense that it was actually signed by him with details in it, came from the Prime Minister. Uh, now, he should have been spending his time running the country and not writing 12 year old kids, by the way, as history will tell us. And so once that happened, and I remember running my my finger along the bottom of the um, signature to see if it was real, and it was. And by then I was emotionally committed, and I since learned that Mr. Youthmaker wasn't quite as perfect as I thought he was when I was 12. But at that moment, and so I worked very hard for a young candidate in uh, Mount Royal who lost his deposit against the Liberals, but nevertheless. And then over time, through high school and through university, I got involved with the young progressive conservatives. And I met David McDonald, who was the MP for Egmont PEI, and he went to a policy conference in 69 in Niagara Falls and presented a paper on a guaranteed annual income. And the party, of course, didn't embrace it because of the traditional right-left split or right-center split in the Tory party. Uh, but I have been a proponent of that idea ever since. And how did you come to team up with Art Eagleton? I think of you both as the odd couple of Canadian politics when it comes to basic income advocacy. How, how did you come to join efforts? So Art and I 
both found ourselves in the Senate. He was there before I was. I was on the uh, Standing Committee on uh, Science, Technology, and Social Affairs, of which Art was the chair. And there was a subcommittee on urban poverty. And Art had a tremendous record, I thought, as mayor of Toronto in terms of really investing heavily in social housing. I don't think any mayor had done as much, uh, certainly before Art and maybe even since. And when I said to him, you know, we really should be taking a good hard look at this poverty issue and basic income. And he said, well, that's great. Let's do a reference in the Senate, which we did, which gave the mandate to the committee, which then downloaded that to our subcommittee, which he chaired and I was the vice chair. And we worked together and held hearings across Canada, which generated the In From The Margins report, uh, for which Art deserves great credit, and uh, which is really the first major report on poverty since David Kroll's report of 1970. And one of the interesting things about the Kroll report is that it didn't really get the publicity I think it deserved back then because its release coincided with a little event called the War Measures Act, which occupied all the available media space. And so uh, Art and I uh, were able to revive interest in the report, and it still reads very well. It was an excellent report back then, and add to it with the report which our committee approved and, and brought forward. Uh, in 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 the last five six years, so you mentioned your family's involvement in different political parties. My dad was a teacher here in Beaches East York, was very involved with the union, and was very involved with the NDP. And I think he was just happy that I wasn't a conservative. <laughs> when I ran as a progressive conservative candidate for Mr. Stanfield in the riding of Ottawa Centre. In 1972, I was literally just graduated from university. The NDP opponent against me was a cap called Irving Greenberg, who was the CEO of a company called Minto Construction, one of the largest construction development firms in Canada. And the Liberal was a wonderful gentleman who'd been the campaign manager for Mr. McElwraith, who held the seat for many years, Hugh Poulin. My grandfather, when I told him I was going to be the candidate, he said, well, look, I, you know, you're, you're running for the boss's party, he said to me. And he said, uh, so I wish you well, but I, you know, I can't support you. And he sent, he sent $50 to the NDP candidate, who was, compared to me, an absolute gazillion, gazillionaire. But my grandfather stayed true to his, um, his commitments and his well, my dad thankfully voted liberal for the first time and even even volunteered. You also mentioned David McDonald, who also happens to be a constituent of Beaches East York now. So it's a small world. I dedicated the book to my mom and to David because of the wonderful opportunity I had as his research assistant to work on issues of poverty in Prince Edward Island and to uh, work in support of his activities in the House of Commons for a period of some years. and. I learned a lot about crossing party lines in the public interest just by watching how he operated. Well, David is now a former progressive conservative, of course, as you know. He saw the party losing its way and didn't stick with the party. You would, I think, still hold true to being a progressive conservative yourself. And, and yet it's hard for progressive conservatives in today's politics here in Canada. Do you see progressive conservatism 
in the party in the course of the current leadership race? Do you have more optimism or is it still quite a frustrating experience? So I'm not awash in optimism on that file. Um, here's my, my instinct is when you have a leadership race, which unlike the race that elected Mr. Stanfield or Mr. Trudeau or Bill Davis in Ontario, there's a long enough period of time to go and bring new people into the party. So the party is reflective of the population as a whole. We have a circumstance where there was almost none of that done. And therefore, the existing membership of the Conservative Party is a pretty right-wing, small-c uh, membership. So I understand if you're a candidate for the leadership of that party, you probably have to tilt in that direction a little bit if you're going to hope to get any measure of support. So whether or not there's any balance in the Conservative Party will determine on who they choose and whether they can articulate that balance in whatever little time may exist between August and whenever the next election takes place. For the sake of our country, I hope that we do see a stronger level of support for more progressive conservative values. You mentioned Prime Minister Diefenbaker coming into your classroom and speaking about building the country up and unifying Canadians. It's, it's the exact opposite of some of the language we unfortunately hear in today's politics. And I've been very discouraged by the kind of um, fixation which I hear from colleagues of yours in the House, like Pierre Polyev and others, about austerity and the deficit, um, and then Mr. Harper's intervention in the Wall Street Journal about we're going to have to cut the public sector, and we're going to have to let public servants go, as if public servants haven't been working remarkably hard during this period to provide services and support for Canadians during the COVID proposition. And it's the same mistake made by Calvin Coolidge, which is to head for austerity before you've actually achieved a measure of liquidity that makes recovery possible. And that's the one mistake we can't afford to make. And if they go down that road, then they will be um, rendering themselves irrelevant to the broader debate. And I don't think it's in their interest, but look, they get to make their own choices. Well, I really appreciate your advocacy on a basic income. It certainly made a big difference in the course of my political life and advocacy. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining me. Good luck and uh, keep up the great work in Ottawa. Thanks for joining us. You can check out other episodes on basic income at uncommons.ca, including with former Senator Art Eagleton, as well as expert and health economist Evelyn Forget.